0: This is Fintech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest fintech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the Fintech Takes newsletter, your host, and self-confessed fintech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to the Fintech Takes podcast. Today, we are recording the listener's favorite podcast with the listener's favorite guest. This is Bank nerd corner with the marvelous kia hazlitt the banking and fintech editor at bank director kia thanks for coming back and doing this again with me
1: yeah happy to be here happy post labor day fall is or summer is over and fall is here it is soup season it is now also virgo season and so i hope you're very you're getting ready to get cozy fired up the crockpot
0: Everything is going very well. My wife tried a pumpkin spice latte because like every you know, six fall. years, yeah, well, it's like, yeah, you know, it comes up with fall and everyone's getting very excited about it. And she knows she doesn't like them, but like every five or six years, she forgets that she doesn't like them. And then yeah. her natural enthusiasm for fall is like, oh, i get a pumpkin spice latte. And then she's like, I hate this. This is terrible. So we did that. We have, yeah, we're going to get the crock pot going. We're switching from like a white wine to a red wine as the house wine. Oh, yeah. So of course. the vibe is, of yeah, the vibe is very strong right now.
1: It's very cozy.
0: It is totally cozy. I was going to give you the opportunity. I know that this is like everyone's favorite podcast, but you have another podcast to tease for our audience, don't you?
1: Yeah. So in my new role at Bank Director, I am taking over the Reinventing Banking podcast. And our first show goes live the week that we're recording in, which will be last week when this Uh goes live. I preview Bank Director's 2023 technology survey, and I revisit my favorite question, which is, which delivery channel is most important to you, branches or the digital channel? Um, Which we've been asking every year that I've been here, and you would just not believe what the percentage is. So that goes live last week. And then it'll be a monthly podcast where I explain tech stuff or a tech theme to bankers. And technology executives.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, I can't wait to listen to it. For everyone listening right now, episode one is now available. Say the name again.
1: It's reinventing banking from Finex Tech.
0: Reinventing banking. Okay. Well, we will all make sure to tune into that. And perhaps I can come on as a guest at some point in the future. Like that.
1: That'd be perfect. Just okay. a crossover episode.
0: Crossover episode. Yes, exactly. Like we'll just take whatever thing we want to talk about that we could do for like three hours, we'll just split yeah. it into two, mm-hmm. like, gigantic, you know, one and a half hour pods for each feed. That'll uh, make no one happy except for us. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, (laughs) give the people, meaning Alex and Kia, exactly what they want. Okay, so as always, we are going to start by jumping through some news items. We actually have quite a few to get to, Kia, so we'll try to hop through quite a few stories. We'll then spend a little bit of time asking the questions that are confusing to us. We have a really good wait, but why? And also a really good potentially unanswerable question that we'll spend some time pulling apart. And then as listeners of the last episode that we did know, we did add a special segment at the end, which I will reintroduce when we get to that point. So Kia, is it okay if I start with the first story?
1: Yeah, let's kick it off.
0: Crow understands that certain moments matter more for fintech companies, whether it's partnering with a bank, moving into a new market or going public. Visit www.crow.com fintech to discover how Crow can help fintech companies like yours find value in volatility. Okay, so the first story is aptly titled, Why Can't Fintech Companies Get Charters? So the main piece of news here was a Bloomberg story titled, Becoming a Bank Proves Challenging for Fintech Seeking Survival. Very sort of dramatic headline. And essentially, it was just sort of exploring the challenges that fintech companies have had in acquiring banking charters. Now, obviously, this is something we've talked about on this podcast before. Key, I know you've written about it. I've also written about it. I feel like a lot of the companies that have either successfully acquired a charter or failed to acquire a charter have definitely been sort of cognizant and sort of on our radar for a while. You know, companies like Varo that went the route of getting a de novo charter have, I think, sort of found that experience to be a lot less fun maybe than they were anticipating. Some of the companies like a Lending Club or SoFi who acquired bank charters by acquiring existing banks have maybe had a slightly easier go of it, although that certainly has not been without challenges. I think the most recent piece of news that was highlighted in this Bloomberg article was that Figure Technologies, which is, for those of you who don't know, a blockchain sort of centric financial services firm that was started by SoFi co-founder Mike Cagney, they're the most recent company to abandon the process of trying to apply for a bank charter after waiting for years to hear back from U.S. financial services regulators. And obviously, they're not alone. Opportune is one that submitted an application and pulled back Brex, Monzo from the U.K., crypto companies like BitPay, as an example. A lot of them have applied over the last few years and have found that experience to be not so great. And, you know, I thought it was really interesting in the Bloomberg article, Kia, because It did a good job, I think, of kind of talking about the rationale for doing it and sort of what they're looking to accomplish. But it also talked about the fact that just particularly post-Trump administration, now that we are in the Biden administration, it just doesn't seem to be a path that's open. And while perhaps buying an existing bank is a little bit easier than going the de novo route, neither are particularly easy. There was a, a quote in the article from a a lawyer who specializes in this area is saying that on a scale of 1 to 10, fintech securing a new bank charter, so going that de novo route, is likely an 8 out of 10, meaning extraordinarily difficult, while acquiring an existing one is closer to a 5 or a 6. So maybe to start, what do you think about that sort of summary of you know, how hard it is and then like why it's gotten harder over the last couple of years?
1: Yeah, so I actually have written about this a couple of times from both the uh, de novo, lack of de novo's in the banking industry, and why fintechs are interested in bank charters, what kind of privileges it allows them. It is interesting. I would suspect that were the big takeaways. It was very time based. It was very opportunistic that when the yeah. Trump administration appointees were in charge of the banking agencies, there was just a different concern or interest in allowing fintechs to gain access to the banking space via a bank charter, whether that's a de novo or buying an existing one. When you start a de novo process, the regulator is just like, I don't want to say like there's less involvement, more involvement. The regulator is just probably the only party you're really interacting with. Whereas when you buy a bank charter, you would be entering negotiations in with a bank and then you apply to the regulator for the sale of that and then that's when they kind of get involved Mm -hmm. Um, yeah to sign off and so I don't know if I think that that's more or less cumbersome it's just probably uh, maybe a shorter time period to get those applications approved if they are going to be approved yeah or to get that no a little faster versus I think with the de novo there's when I was, I went back to read my ar- old article. I came across the stat that Vero's initial charter application to the OCC was 10,000 pages long. Wow! And it took two years from beginning to end, from the first time they filed paperwork to the time they got their charter. That is a lot prove. of
0: legal fees among yeah. other things. I was <laughs> well, just no, like, 10,000 pages is a lot. 10,000
1: pages, yeah. And then the other thing too is like the De Novo application is kind of weird because you apply with the chartering agency. And then sometimes you'll get conditional approval and then but like contingent on also getting deposit insurance. Like you don't get those two yeses at the same time.
0: That's like go ask your mom thing, right? Like, yeah. Like I don't really want to totally sign off on this, but I'm okay with it, but only if your mom's also okay with it. I've this is something I've been doing more and more with my kids lately. So I'm familiar <laughs> with this model. Very relevant example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, and the other thing too is I also think that regulators have become very concerned about not just who has not just fintechs that might have access to deposit insurance or insured deposits. But also, who gets access to a Fed Master account, which we've talked we have talked about before?
0: Yes, and is uh, quite a bone of contention in the fintech and crypto space in particular.
1: Right, and so most banks are eligible to apply for a master account through their Federal Reserve bank, their like it regional is? bank. And the easiest way to get your application, your like the lowest level of scrutiny, is applied to institutions that have deposit insurance, which tend to be banks. And right. so. That Getting that deposit insurance is seen as kind of like almost a little bit of a shortcut to the master account. You can, apparently you can have a master account without having deposit insurance. It's just a, a lot harder. And the Federal Reserve has now litigated their ability to say no to those types of companies. Mm-hmm. It is interesting to think about like a fintech going to community banks across the country that are like very we were talking about this before. They were like <laughs> one branch community banks. Yeah. And introducing themselves and saying, like, yeah, a hey, little
0: family bank, like right. just sort of living in this one little community, probably doesn't even really know what fintech is. And
1: exactly. Mike and Cagney knocks themselves? on your door
0: and is like, Hey, I have a, a blockchain-based fintech company that I'm mm-hmm. starting. Do you want to sell we,
1: yourself to us? Yeah.
0: And you're like, I don't know. It's,
1: so when you talk about is it easier? I don't know how easy those conversations are and I don't know how many times you're having those conversations.
0: Well, it is expensive too, right? Cuz you're yeah. buying a really small bank not for its assets, but for its charter and its sort of like ability to get you inside the club, so to speak. So from a banking M&A perspective, these are all overpays when you're a fintech company is buying a tiny little Bank with one branch. Yeah, and theoretically, it's $5 a bit of an overpay. Deposit. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. You're not.
1: It's not like super based on tangible book value right, and right. the assets, the size yep. of the assets. I will say that also in my research, I was reminded that when SoFi acquired Golden Pacific Bank, which had 150 million in assets, the purchase price was two hundred. Sorry, twenty two million dollars, but they had to then add seven hundred fifty million to the bank's capital.
0: Oh wow! In order.
1: Because they wanted to do nationwide lending and a $150 million bank does not need as much capital as a nationwide lender. And so there are a lot of costs to doing both of these things. And it's interesting to me because I, you know, it's not clear from the Bloomberg article on what basis these applications are being like slow rolled or slow burned, backburned and or outright denied. We know that in the banks space, it's pretty well known that regulators, if they instead of saying no, they'll like backburn you. And then you yeah, they just won't will get just eventually get the hint and they ghost will you. your
0: application. Yeah. yeah. Well,
1: they'll like keep asking you for information. They just don't like denying applications for some no. reason.
0: right? Well, because then you have to really give like a very concrete reason why you're denying them. Whereas it's like, oh, you know, yeah, it's just might going to take a little bit while longer. Yeah. And I mean, that's the other thing about the fintech space in particular. And it depends on the size of the bank, obviously. But like these companies don't have an unlimited runway, right? Like you raise right. venture capital you allocate a portion of it to go spend on lawyer fees, to do a de novo charter, or to go negotiate with a tiny little bank to buy them and then get approval from regulators. Like, there's a clock ticking right behind you going like, okay, like, this is cool. And if you do, this will meaningfully change your business model and the unit economics of your business, which we like, but we can't just stay in limbo forever. Whereas, you know, we were talking before about Some of the, like, column bank that the one of the co-founders of Plaid bought out of his own pocket, I understand. Like, that's a different thing, right? Because that's your own money that you're using to buy a bank. You can wait and kind of go through the process. There's not that same ticking clock. But for VC-backed fintech companies, there is.
1: And it's just the other thing, too, about de novos is it doesn't surprise me that fintechs are having a hard time starting de novos because everyone's having a hard time with de novos. The math's a little different from if it's a bank-focused investor group, like if it's genuinely like a group of investors starting a bank. But we just don't see a lot of de novos and (laughs) de novo applications and then de novos opening successfully. And this kind of feels like it's just one subset of a bigger trend of things that aren't happening.
0: I agree with that. I mean, I think the—and I know some folks in the space have commented on this, but to me, the really interesting question is very, like, broad level. I don't, you know, I don't particularly care about— figure specifically in fact i can't really articulate what figure does which is sort of a separate issue but like to me maybe that figures into their application i it might if the, it you're might. having
1: a tra- problems with that like. yeah
0: yeah it's like we're going to use blockchain to do something with mortgages and well wasn't there like another thing with like really high uninsured deposits as sort of a funding mechanism for it
1: oh yeah i so again, reading my 2021 article about fintech buying or trying to acquire bank charters, yeah. I noted at the time that figures plan, which is like, I don't know, kind of made sense at 21, to they were not going to get in deposit insurance because they were only going to use large wholesale deposit insurance. So they were going to get this national bank charter, but not have to re- apply for deposit insurance with the FDIC to like kind of expedite that part of the application faster so I have this note here that large uninsured deposits plus 5% interest rates plus a spring bank failure plus crypto winter uh, is equals maybe not right the right time to start a bank.
0: Yeah, yeah. Even if it was not already clear that the regulators were sort of slow rolling pretty much all applications, that one in particular might have gotten slow rolled just, just, just as a like
1: a couple of flags. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can see that
0: one being a little risky. But yeah, I mean, I think the broader question to me is I do think that given the consolidation in the U.S. banking market and, you know, everyone in the U.S. sort of has this fondness for like, we have a lot of banks in the U.S. and that's a good thing. as many banks as possible. Yeah, like this is great. And we don't care that Kia has problems keeping track of all the different names because they're all really similar. Like, that's not our problem. We love all these banks. Like, and I I don't necessarily totally disagree with that mindset because I do think there are things about the U.S. market that make having a lot of banks sometimes advantageous. But we're not going to have that if we don't have some type of de novo process that's relatively easy for people to get started. And obviously, like, I get capital requirements, I get increasing regulatory scrutiny. I get that. See, my theory is a lot of sort of state level regulators from a banking perspective really got sort of supercharged post financial crisis. So, like, I understand why it's hard, but we're not really making it easy to continue to have a thriving ecosystem of lots of banks. And I think, you know, people have drawn the comparison to, well, maybe like banking as a service is the way that we replace that de novo process. So we have all these like fintech companies, they come in, they partner with existing banks and they're sort of the new entrance into the banking space. And we don't need to have like a really like nice sandbox, easy de novo process for new banks to form. And I think that's fine. But then Kia, my question is, is there a graduation process? Like, can anyone go from, okay, we did the fintech thing we built a business. We proved out our business model. We think we deserve a Fed master account and FDIC insurance and the ability to lend off of our own balance sheet and blah, blah, blah. Can we please have those things? It, like, I, I don't know that regulators have solved the problem of at some point, these new companies probably should have the ability to become banks. and It, it seems like the door kind of keeps getting slammed on them.
1: Yeah, that was something that I thought about that SoFi and Lending Club, both uh, very particularly have in common is that they had like years of operations yeah. and they were of a certain size and their you know business model, you can say whether or not they made a lot of money, but they had a business model that seemed to be working. Yeah. And it seemed like for them getting a bank charter kind of was both a matter of scale. And then they found the right bank partner to sell to them. The other thing that both of these banks have in common or both of these companies have in common is that they were public. And I think one thing that's really that we don't really talk about is kind of a little inside baseball, but mm-hmm. some of these fintechs that are public do have these higher standards. They are audited. They do have to have quarterly calls and filings. They do already have a financial regulator in the SEC. And so I wonder if, you know, it doesn't, again, mean <laughs> that it's an easy yes to, to on these bank applications, but it might just be a little bit easier for regulators to understand, OK, well, this is going to be a holding company. The public parent company can be a source of strength for the bank unit. The Lending Club told me that they had some compliance issues with their um, original founder, and so they they got in trouble for that. It's funny. The uh, executives exactly at the company told in, me the same
0: thing. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And yeah they yeah. had to
1: put in all this bank compliance, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, this is so expensive. We might as well just be a bank." <laughs>
0: totally, totally. Yeah, they had, they kind of had to take their medicine, right? Like, I think that's a big characteristic to your point of companies that have navigated this transition successfully. There was some moment, whether it was going public or in Lending Club's case, getting in trouble with the loan sales on their marketplace and having to untangle all of that, where they had kind of had to take their like risk governance and compliance medicine. And once they took that, then it was like, well, we're boring. And yeah. we have all these people in here who make us be boring and like we do boring things. We might as well be a bank because they'll love us. Regulators will like get what we're doing. So I do think that's not a surprise. I think the other thing, and this is kind of the difference between Varro, and like Lending Club and SoFi, another difference from my perspective is, I think it's way easier to become a bank when you've already kind of gotten kicked in the teeth from a lending perspective.
1: Yeah, I was wondering about the lending uh, fintechs. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: like because yeah, the first couple of vintages of portfolios that you originate are gonna suck no matter what you do because lending is just really hard, and you have to really get dialed in on your acquisition strategy, your underwriting, your servicing. Like it's just hard to build that machine until you've gone through a couple iterations. But you do that for five years, 10 years, whatever. At that point, you know pretty well how to lend money. And I would feel like if I was a regulator looking at like your business and the viability of your business and do you understand what capital you're going to need and all this stuff, like a, a company that's been doing lending for a while and has managed to run a relatively good business, that would give me a lot more comfort than... Neobank that's just been doing debit interchange based business right. model, like that's a different <laughs> risk. I don't know that you know how to make money yet, so that's a different thing.
1: And we've talked about too the differences between the you know SoFi lending club and VARO and how important it is for a baby bank to lend. Basically, like de novo's have an over reliance on interest income, which is why right. historically you've seen more de novo's in a rising rate environment open. Because they can just make more money on the loans, which is also why we don't have a lot of de novos. Cause we just had 15 years of really low interest rates. And I know that, you know, 5% interest rates have totally erased what the last 15 years have been like, but but that when you're not lending, you're just not able to make a lot of money. Right. The other thing too, and you know, I don't know too much about this because again, we just don't have a lot of data points of mm-hmm. fintechs that have been able to successfully acquire a charter. But I think regulators do care about financial inclusion. And so the arguments that Vero, Lending Club, and SoFi have been probably been able to include in their applications that they would be broadening financial services to consumer lending, particular consumer banking, is probably a little bit more compelling of an argument than like blockchain-based mortgage lending or something. And that would explicitly not be for retail banking, right, with the uninsured aspect.
0: Well, it kind of goes to even other things like are you buying this bank charter and are you going to continue to operate this bank in this community that's already in? Or are you going to buy this bank charter and then completely pivot into a totally different line of business and leave this community sort of hanging? Which actually, I think, brings us to our next story, Kia.
1: Good transition. Thank I you. would like to tell you about one of these transactions that kind of went sideways, big time, Yeah, which is, you know, rest in peace, Moonstone Bank, aka Farmington State Bank. Yeah. So I think this is actually kind of a sad story. And this is a sad ending from the bank perspective. And also, I don't think it says good things about crypto, which I'm also here for. (laughs) But um, (laughs) so Farmington State Bank is a bank that was established in 1887 and served a rural agricultural community in Washington. It seems like, you know, between 2019, early 2020, the bank was approached by tech entrepreneur Jean-Jacques Pierre Chalopin, who already controlled a bank in the Bahamas and was a resident of the Bahamas, about acquiring the bank. The This is like inside baseball, but the application to acquire the banker was approved on delegate authority by the San Francisco Fed. It didn't go to Washington, but when they approved the acquisition and then they approved, they had to approve like a holding company creation. There was a series of restrictions that were put in, on the bank by the regulators, including that for three years, any changes in senior management, changes to the business plan, or to significant bank operations would require previous or prior written regulatory approval. Evidently this doesn't happen because everyone learns about Farmington State Bank when it changes its name to Moonstone Bank and announces it's going big in crypto and going to do like a stable coin and its deposits like shoot up, multiples higher. And publicly everyone's like, How is this happening? (laughs) And I think everyone kind of knew that a lot of these changes or a lot of these changes in, in strategy would have had to been approved by a regulator. And it seems kind of like it didn't seem like a regulator would approve these kinds of changes. And apparently it didn't because the Federal Reserve published an order recently that put a consent order on the bank, charged the holding company with serving as a source of trade. They're not allowed to pay out dividends. And the bank is going to liquidate itself and sell, voluntarily sell all of its loans and deposits to the Bank of Eastern Oregon. Mm -hmm. And I feel really bad about this because like, I feel like the Farmington management team just like got the wall pulled over on their eyes and it Is feels it? like a cautionary tale about these small manage these you know the management teams at these small banks kind of getting in over their head with the fintech types and crypto or not like that sucks and like it sucks that this you know community lost their bank and it's you know I'm not clear if um it's not clear if like the management team wanted to just get out and looking to retire and someone to take it over they were looking for new investors trying to just figure out how to survive the next 10 you know 100 years of banking but this seems like a really sad way to end their saga.
0: It absolutely does. Yeah, I agree with you. And I mean, this obviously popped up on everyone's radar in the wake of the FTX collapse because Alameda, FTX's right. hedge fund arm actually had a stake in the bank post its yeah, acquisition. Yeah, I have questions about
1: that. We all yeah. have questions about how We that have happened. questions.
0: Yeah, that's like really weird, right? And obviously, I mean, anyone that was sort of having a stake put in them by FTX probably we should have some questions about. But like, yeah, more broadly, I totally agree with your take on it being a sad story. I mean, this is why regulators don't want to approve these acquisitions or necessarily to approve de novo charters is that everything on the surface is like, yep, we're going to continue to serve this community. We'll run all of the changes that we want to make through management. We'll run all of those past regulators. We have no intent to sort of just strip this bank of its charter and go take this and do some other very Mm -hmm. different thing using this bank charter. And by the way, the other stuff that we want to do, it's all about financial inclusion and access and making a fair world. Like, that's the top level pitch for crypto, right? Same way as it is for fintech (laughs) and everything else. And, you know, I can totally understand how tiny little bank in rural Washington probably didn't have necessarily, well, either the incentives or the sophistication to be able to sort of parse right. is this person. And what is this pitch? And is does this make sense? And is this a good idea? And do you know Sam Bankman-Fried? And what's your relationship to him? Yeah, like those he are the friend kind in of, the Bahamas. Right. Yeah. Is that like that other guy, you know, in the Bahamas? So, I mean, it's I think it's very much a story of a really, really scary part of the sort of unregulated corner of financial services, which obviously we've been dealing with as an industry for the last few years now. We're running headlong into the sort of most kind of quiet, sort of earnest, naive corner of banking, which is these small little community banks that have been around since the 1800s and, you know, don't have a ton of ambition, which is fine. Like, they're serving their community and they're doing what they're supposed to do. So, yeah, I totally agree. It's a very sad story. I think this is the type of thing that definitely contributes to regulators being unwilling To allow more of this activity to just sort of run through and definitely makes me kind of just wonder, you know, what we're going to see moving forward in terms of like the acquisition of these banks. Like, I could see from a regulator's perspective, you might be tempted to just go, and I'm not saying this is the official policy of regulators or anything, because obviously it's been kind of quiet, but. Like them just kind of coming to the opinion of, you know what, no more poaching teeny tiny little banks that don't know (laughs) better. Right. Like if you want to buy a bank, you have to go buy one that's over X amount in size, which means that, A, you have to be big enough to be able to do that. And B, all of that is going to run through enough of like a process and due diligence and vetting that it's just going to be slow and hard and we'll be able to get our hands around it before you know what you're able to do. Like, to me, there's a bit of a regulatory arbitrage in we're going to go pick off these teeny tiny banks before anyone can stop us. That seems like kind of what happened here.
1: And also, I just want to call attention to the phrasing that, you know, stripping sh- the charter. You and Michelle Bowman both <laughs> Me see <this> after as... <laughs> Michelle Bowman, I will say. Fed Governor Michelle Bowman yeah. uh, referred to transactions where a non-bank company, like, specifically targets small banks— uh, for an acquisition and then basically like strips the bank for parts and has maybe no intention of maintaining the service to the community and is just using this transaction to get the charter. It's possible she was speaking exactly about this bank, this transaction, which the Fed would have, you know, like I said, had approved. She mentioned this in this April 2023 speech where she also is talking a little bit about why are fintechs going for acquisitions instead of de novos because all else being equal you would think that a fintech would want to build everything themselves and not take over branches and not have to deal with local depositors and that she was highlighting that actually the you know it's just really really hard to get a de novo and specifically hard for a fintech to get a de novo i find charter stripping to be really jarring of a language and maybe that's you know maybe that's her it's good for to see these um, transactions as kind of bad and like uh, you know charter stripping is a loaded term.
0: Yeah, yeah, it very much brings to mind this idea of like exploiting people. You know, yeah. That's kind of the and vibe. Like, yeah. stripping a
1: car for parts or mm-hmm. like I don't know. And you know, I kind of thought that the fintech purchases of banks were it was kind of good for both parties, but now seeing you know the Farmington Bank saga and seeing what this like you know. The management. This new management team did to this bank, and you know, just kind of thumbsing their nose at regulators' power authority. It did feel like kind of mess around and find out energy, where <laughs> the you know they were. You know, it seems like the again. I'm. I don't know anything um internal, but it seems like the management team was like, I don't know what's the worst they're going to do about it. Like shut us down, and if yeah, they're not going to do that. That's crazy. We'll just they'll just give us a consent order and we'll ignore it. Yeah, and like the Fed shut this down. Like they yes. were like. You will. Se- I mean, I have no idea how you do these like voluntary liquidations. We've now seen two in the industry when when we tend to see zero. But to just be like, no, you're done. We're pulling like it, it, it feels like they're pulling their bank charter. And now the bank has to just be sold out. Um, and then Bowman also mentioned in her speech that she questioned whether banking as a service and the ease that fintechs can use or sign up for banking as a service and find bank partners is kind of their like workaround for some of the de novo challenges. And so I was wondering about her. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, Alex, about one of her quotes in here, which is quote, from a policy perspective, there should be no net difference in the compliance expectations for banking as a service and de novo banks that engage in the same underlying activity. I assume she's talking about fintechs, that kind of make these two choices, not banks that make these two choices. But what yeah. do you think about her saying they are, there should be similar compliance expectations?
0: That, I think, is a really interesting quote. And I mean, I agree generally with the spirit of the quote, which is we have created, whether we meant to or not, a clear sort of regulatory preference for banking as a service over de novo. I think that's pretty obvious based on the fact that no one can navigate the de novo process right now, but it is possible even with increasing scrutiny on the banking as a service space, which you and I have talked and written about a lot, even with all of that increasing scrutiny and consent orders and everything, it's still vastly easier to go that route than it is to go de novo, no question. Yeah. And so, like, to me, I think what I, my takeaway from that quote is, is that the de novo process, probably a little bit of both, the de novo process needs to get easier as a starting place and probably pass needs to get a little harder. I think it's kind of like, we're true, we need to sort of find the water level here because as we've seen, there've been a lot of compliance failures from a banking as a service perspective. And where that compliance responsibility gets kind of split out between the bank and the fintech company is a subject of much debate and discussion Mm -hmm. right now. But I think on the de novo front, you know, it's kind of like, This is what happens when you cut off that as a different route that people can go, right? Everybody goes down the other path or you have people going up over the top and trying to acquire these small little community banks. Like an interesting, I think, sort of hypothetical question would be if the de novo process was more sort of accessible to startups and it was just like, hey, you know, we won't let you do a lot, but we will let you do stuff quickly and kind of iterate and experiment on a low level and we'll be comfortable with that risk, and we won't throw up a huge number of roadblocks just to get that first step done. Like If that had been our sort of default regulatory stance in the U.S. for the last, I don't know, 10 years, would we have seen as much of, you know, Moonstone banks appearing out of nowhere? Would we have seen as much sort of just crazy madness happening in the banking as a service space? Or would it sort of load balanced itself out into the de novo space? As well, I don't know and maybe the counterpoint to that is that the banking as a service stuff wouldn't have become nearly as sophisticated and advanced and mature as it is arguably now compared to where we were 10 years ago but I don't know to me that's a really interesting hypothetical question to poke at.
1: Yeah, you'd have to, it's so funny like I just want to make a joke here that that pretends <laughs> that we've always had Durban and Durban is a oh, great financial crisis p- regulation. But totally. Know, right? Totally. So Durban happens and then a bunch of stuff happens. And yeah. then like five years later, someone figures out that it a fintech with Interchange could get a de novo char- or like a Denovo charter. Right. Like those, the, the thing that you're talking about has something else has to happen first, which is right. Durban
0: passes. Right, right. No, it's absolutely true. Yeah, it's there's all of these little unintended consequences to all of these things. So pretty interesting. Speaking of compliance, do you mind if I do one more quick story?
1: Yeah, hit, hit me.
0: Okay, so this one I'll go quickly through, but Alloy, the fintech company, put out a report, a benchmark report, based on a survey that they did of 200 fintech professionals who are in some way or another involved in compliance decisions. So this is a compliance benchmark report from Alloy. And it was an interesting timing for this coming out because I've been writing a lot about (laughs) banking as a service and fintech and compliance and just all of these questions. And Kia, I want to give you a few of the takeaways from the findings of the report and yeah, how you I'm just so respond to this. this. Okay. So I'm just going to, I'm going to go one at a time. I'll give you one finding and you sort of react to it. And then I'll give you another one. And we'll, we'll do that for a couple of findings. Sound good. Okay. All <laughs> I right. just,
1: part of me is just like, oh, welcome. Like, yeah, no, welcome seriously. to compliance. Right? Well, like, I
0: mean, tell so me,
1: tell me, do you think it's hard? No, oh, well, okay. no,
0: no, 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 no. This is all a perfect right? segue. This is a perfect segue because <laughs> here's the first finding. First finding all was right, here we go. they asked, they asked fintech folks, what is the level, it's kind of a strangely worded question, but what is the level of compliance requirements that your organization is achieving? So basically asking, are you doing the bare minimum? Are you going over that and doing more than the minimum? Or are you doing less than the minimum? As you might be not terribly surprised to hear, given that this is a self-assessment of what your organization is doing, Uh 80% said that they are doing more than the minimum that is required. 20% said that they are doing the minimum And 0% said that they are doing less than the minimum. So Kia, what do you think of that finding?
1: You know, if I was going to take this answer seriously and, you know, yay to 80% (laughs) doing more than the minimum, I like to think that if you have zero legacy, um, holding you back, zero legacy system, zero, like, like if you haven't been in operation for 20 years and seen a rule change three times and then constantly felt behind the eight ball with all the rule changing, Mm -hmm. do more than the minimum right away. That's like, do you always do more than the minimum? I have skeptic. I don't know what the minimum, like what is the minimum what compliance requirement here yeah. is. I know, you know, banks say that they would also say that they, you know, do more than the minimum. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think the other thing too is banks often don't have as much technology or- available to them. And then they also have this like, this like the new requirements on top of the older requirements. I would actually expect if, banks were answering this to for the 80% to be a little lower. I I have a little bit of skepticism about the 80%. I do like hats off to the 20% for being honest. And so I love, you know, we love to see that. We love to see someone just like bare minimum mailing it in. And I also am like very curious about what the compliance requirements are here in particular.
0: Yeah, kind of I think it was sort of left up to everyone's individual judgment as to what like the minimum actually means, but I mean, we know, right, from the fact that there have been consent orders in this space, like, there are people doing less than the minimum, like, by <laughs> definition. Like, there are people doing less than the minimum and getting punished by regulators but for doing less the than
1: the minimum. The 20% already get their consent orders. Is that I, they might have.
0: They might have. Or maybe some of those are now in the 80%. They're like, we're doing way more than the minimum now because we have all of these requirements that we're now under. But I think that's one thing. The minimum one, I think the thing that was funny about that 20% to me was it's almost sort of a philosophical question in that like, obviously, the tone of this survey was, tell us how great you are at compliance and how seriously you take this. And so like the 80% didn't totally surprise me. The 20% I thought was interesting just in that like, there's an argument to be made both on the part of banks, but particularly fintech companies, you should just do the minimum. Like the minimum is what you are legally required to do. And anything beyond that is a waste of resources that could be better spent on customer acquisition, on customer service, on partnerships, investment in technology, whatever. So like, I kind of like the 20% being like, yeah, you know, we're not breaking the law. We're doing what we're supposed to do, but like, we're not going to just try to get extra credit in a class that we're already going to ace, I think is sort of the mentality so, wait, the there. So, the minimum
1: compliance requirement is like a B grade or an A grade or a C grade. Where are you I, I at?
0: I think it's probably just like average. I think it's like a C. That's maybe it's be a C like. Yeah, yeah. Like, we're not trying to impress the parents with this, but like, you know, this is a horribly stretched analogy. But if VCs are the parents here, the VCs care about their kids being awesome at sports. They don't care how they're doing in school. So as long as you're giving me Cs, then we're fine, and I want you to spend all of your extra time and energy getting really good at football or lacrosse or soccer. So to me, that's that 20% going like, yep, we're getting the grades we need, and we're moving on. But you have to remember, the people that are being surveyed for this are compliance professionals working at these fintech companies. So they probably have a slightly different viewpoint on that. But anyway, all right, next question. second next one. one, yep, is... What are the leading barriers to meeting compliance requirements? And to your earlier point, lack of automation, which would be sort of code for technology, around compliance was the number one barrier listed. 55% of folks uh, selected that one. Number two was existing regulations are too strict, 49%. And access to experts who understand how to apply compliance regulation is 47%. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, join the party. Um, yeah, yeah, yep. I. So the lack of automation around compliance. It sounds like fintech needs to sell fintech to fintech.
0: Well, um, and, and for SAR filing in particular, for those uh, listening, that the yeah. filing of SARS was the thing that seemed to be really annoying to fintech. Companies. How many
1: SARS are these fintechs like generating? Oh, my God, I don't
0: know. I don't know. That was another thing that was in the also, survey. Did actually. you not
1: realize that that was something you're gonna have to do?
0: Oh, no, I know. Well, it's like, again, kind of welcome to your party thing. Like, banks are like, yeah, they suck, don't they? You yeah. know, it's like kind of the deal, you know?
1: Right. The banks are looking for the technology to automate the compliance. Fintechs are also looking for technology to automate compliance. Everyone's looking for technology to automate compliance. Yes. The existing regulations being too strict. That one is hilarious. Again, I just going, we just talked about fintechs wanting to be banks. And it's so it's like, and Malavine makes this point all the time. If you think your job is hard Try being a bank. Banks have some of the highest regulations governing them. Yeah, it's um, like you, you
0: don't want to be regulated by the SEC. Try being regulated by bank regulators. Right? It's so much less fun than being regulated so, by the SEC. You know,
1: it, yeah. So you just whatever rules that you're barely complying with, you think are too strict. It just could be more. And then access to experts who understand how to apply. This is so relatable. I just, and again, I don't know what these fintechs thought their work was going to be like. But if you want to mess with people's money, you are going to encounter just so many rules and regulations. And sometimes I wonder with these fintechs, like, what did you know about this before you started working in this space? Because you seem to be surprised by a lot of things that a lot of people would consider to be extremely obvious.
0: Well, and I will say they did a good job in the survey of breaking out the size of respondent for that question. And it was smaller fintech companies that were saying predominantly... That the existing regulations are too strict and access to experts uh, who understand all this stuff was really hard. That was the smaller ones. The bigger ones were more about like automation and more about like lack of clarity on regulations. So think about like someone like a Coinbase bitching about the SEC not you know being clear in their rules. So it does shift a bit based on the size. But yeah, you do definitely get the sense reading this survey that there are fintech founders coming into this going. I have to do what? You know, and you're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's well, not as fun awesome. as maybe you uh, thought it was going to be. Crow gets fintech. For decades, Crow specialists have watched this industry evolve and helped companies navigate the moments that matter most, whether finding new sources of funding to fuel growth or responding to complex regulations. Visit www.crow.com fintech to find out how Crow works with fintech companies like yours to help uncover value and volatility. So a couple of quick ones for you. These ones are really okay. fun. Asking about what is your biggest concern for the coming year. Number one was the financial cost of compliance, which was slightly ahead of the financial losses associated with fraud and I find that one really interesting because I think it speaks to the distinction between banks and fintech companies, right? Because fintech companies are like, oh, it is so annoying that we have to spend all of this money complying with these rules that are dumb. Why do we have to do this? Whereas with fraud, they're like, ah, eh, the cost ah, of doing cost business. Of business, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, we it's have to acquire, we have to grow, it's a write-off, like it's just an expense, we'll just, you know, mark it down. And I think that if you were to ask bank executives this, you'd see a flip in that question. And I think banks would be like, "Fraud losses are so so annoying because like people are stealing our money. Like our job yeah. is to like give money out responsibly and get it back, and people are stealing it's our like, money. This is like I mean, enraging. mean like, fraud to us. is like
1: modern bank robbery, right? It for is. Ba- it is banks, it right. Is. Like right. people used exactly. to exactly it used to happen all the time, and now it yeah. like, happens a lot less, but it's happening." In different ways, and they're stealing money from the bank. And exactly, this so is banks like,
0: are just like they hate bank robbers more than anything. Is kind of what it would be my guess. Whereas I think like, they
1: hate bank robbers more than bank examiners for sure. Oh,
0: totally right. So then the cost of compliance would I think be way down on the list for banks. And I know they complain about it, and especially you hear from small banks when you know new compliance rules come in. Oh, the cost of this is going to be really huge or whatever. But like it's more the cost of doing business, and it's how they think. So I found the flip flop of those pretty interesting as well.
1: The marginal cost of one more piece of regulation for banks is, like, kind of smaller, probably, than the marginal right. cost of one more piece of regulation for fintechs. The other thing, too, is I think bank regulators have done a, a okay job, but mm. they're waving at it, of tailoring re- regulation for banks based on size and or activity. Mm. And so I don't know if that's happening in the fintech space the way it happens in the bank space. The other thing, right. too, about banks is we have, like, a pretty good way to measure how big banks are. Yeah. And I've mentioned before, but I have, like... We just don't have a lot of data about the size of fintechs, how big they are, and how we would even define that. Whereas in banks, we are like, how many assets do you have? That's how big you are, for the most part. I'm
0: going to give you one last one. This is just for the walls, because really, I don't have any super deep analysis about this. But I think you'll find it funny. Four percent of respondents thought that crypto, as an area, was going to be less regulated in the coming year. So there'll be less regulation around crypto than there was the year before Only 4% of people thought that, which probably is true. That might even be a little bit high. But hilariously, Mm -hmm. when you ask them about banking as a service, only 1% thought that there would be less regulation in the coming year for banking as a service. So actually more optimistic about regulation staying the same or being lightened for crypto than for banking as a service. That tells you something about the fintech environment around banking as a service right now.
1: Yeah, I hope that—I don't know when this survey came out, but I hope that if it was after the Federal Reserve announced that they were going to have novel supervision, novel supervision group for banks involved in fintech activities, people read that and believed it. <laughs> so yep, maybe it's this is I'm getting the message. Oh, for sure. I would be sure. curious. Oh, I, I want to know what kind of regulations they think could come to the bath space because you and I are going to talk about this, obviously. I think this will be a conversation that continues given some recent reporting around banking as a service, how it's practiced in different ways at banks and maybe why that matters. Mm -hmm. But I just would love to know what what they think could happen for in banking as a service. Yeah,
0: know? I totally agree. Well, if Alloy, if you're listening, we'd love to take everyone out for a drink who filled out this survey and get some some candid I thoughts on that what's 20% coming next. Twenty
1: percent bare minimum. Oh, like, me too. Let me really, Adam. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, I'd love.
0: I would love to talk to them so much. Okay, so now we're going to spend just a couple minutes here at the end doing our questions that we have. So first, we have our wait, but why question. And key, I think this one is for you to ask.
1: All right, Alex, my question for you is, wait, why can't everyone agree on what is an uninsured deposit?
0: Uh Okay, so for folks who've been paying attention in the banking space, the impetus for this question is that there was a bit of a shift in the uninsured deposits that were being reported in the sort of just standard reports from banks right around, when was it, like July, August? It was this summer. It was fairly recently, right, Kia?
1: The filings were for the fourth quarter of 2022, so the year end
0: mm-hmm. and the first
1: quarter. It was noticed in, I think, July. And I have a couple of theories about how I think it was noticed, but basically like the number, <laughs> the fourth quarter number would have hopefully been filed before the end of the first quarter.
0: Yeah. And and there was a story in the S&P that found that 117 companies had restated their fourth quarter 2022 uninsured call report data for a net decline of $281 billion since the original filing. So that was the change in the uninsured deposit totals across those 117 companies. For the first quarter, 98 banks have restated for a net decline of $79 billion. So between fourth quarter of 2022 and first quarter of this year, There have been these restatements of the amount of uninsured deposits. And I guess, Kia, turning the question back to you, what are your theories for what this is? Because this struck me as like a really weird, you know, two groups of people yelling at each other about something really specific that I guess I wasn't paying close enough attention to to know what was going on.
1: Yeah. So the background is that every quarter banks have to file basically an inventory of everything in their bank and how much. It's called the call report. And one of those questions is, how many of your deposits are over the insurance threshold of 250000 That number shouldn't be changing a lot, quarter over quarter, at individual banks. But would you not believe that we had a bunch of restatements? And the, it's a little confusing here whether or not the fourth quarter filing was initially filed and then refiled with a lower number, or the fourth quarter number was filed with a lower number and then had to be refiled with a higher number. I think like for individual banks, they might be going up and down based on some of s ps reporting, which they have, you know, they download all the call report and it's really easy to figure it out. But um, anyway, so what happened is the FDIC caught wind of this in July and told banks to knock it off. It <laughs> seems like two different line items very specifically were, it, were changing a lot and it was intercompany deposits, so, or interbank and, deposits, and then collateralized deposits. I found collateralized to be really interesting because a collateralized deposit can still be over the insurance threshold but oftentimes they tend to be municipal deposits and well, What what a, is a
0: collateralized deposit just for for the So it's a
1: deposit that has like an asset on, backing it. Okay. Like a city will like put their deposits at a bank and then they'll also have to put some collateral underlying that deposit like bonds which is kind of just a weird municipal deposit thing. That
0: is um, weird. Um <laughs> uh <laughs> but, <laughs>
1: That one to me is really interesting because I think we've been really trying to figure out how risky are different types of deposits and what is the risk predictor or indicator of those deposits. And my sense is that on these collateralized deposits, a bank might say like, "Yeah, it's over two hundred fifty thousand, so it's uninsured, but like it's not going to leave if we run into stress because we, it's collateralized. The deposit they don't think there's as big of a loss potential on the deposit." if the bank fails because they would be able to sell this thing and like get the deposit back i guess oh, the amount of the deposit back it's been really interesting to see that line item be debated and then you know i suspect that the fourth quarter number mm-hmm. is the call report that's being messed around with in part because some banks will have to pay the special assessment that the fdic is like going to charge large banks because they covered all of signature and silicon valleys uninsured deposits. So there was a like that systemic risk exemption allowed the FDIC to cover all the deposits and then they have to make up that shortfall which was billions of dollars through an insurance assessment. And so and they will be using they've announced in their request for a proposal on this that they'll be using the fourth quarter 2022 numbers before the banking crisis.
0: And they're specifically looking at a category of banks that have a certain size or certain types of yeah, deposits for that assessment? Yeah,
1: it's over a certain asset size, and so mm-hmm. th- there's only going to be about, like, 20 or 50 banks that have to pay this billions of dollars <laughs> assessment.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting.
1: But you don't want the fund to go negative, so...
0: Well, I mean, they're legally not allowed to let that happen, right? They have to make up the money, so...
1: They have to make the the funds gone negative before, but they had to make up the money and they had to do it during the financial crisis, which was really expensive for all the banks.
0: Well, this is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing about this that's kind of interesting to me is it also speaks maybe a little bit to moving forward and trying, if you're a bank, to sort of anticipate what rules are maybe going to come out of all of this around Mm -hmm. how we think about from a regulatory perspective, where the risk is in your deposit franchise and maybe what rules or things we want to wrap around that. And I I wonder if banks are sort of starting to think about like, well, yeah, if there's going to be new sort of requirements or rules or designations that are tied to the level of uninsured deposits, we need to be more proactive in helping regulators define what are the risky uninsured deposits Mm -hmm. and what are the not-so-risky uninsured deposits. Because, I mean, like anything, all of these deposit designations that we talk about in this podcast and that yeah, I know you write about a lot, They come out of these historical areas or reasons, but then they don't necessarily evolve to keep pace with what's happening in the market. And uninsured deposits are a really good example, I think, of like, you know, one where I can see historically the reasons for why it was considered to be risky. But I do think banks probably do have a bit of a case to make that, you know, not all of our uninsured deposits should be treated equally.
1: Certain types are going to behave differently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's hard because you kind of want to make this as easy as possible, but also you, sometimes I think when we just do simple line items like broker deposits, when we do Mm uninsured deposits and we use that as an, like these amounts can figure into your insurance assessment and your deposit insurance assessment. And so if you might be overpaying for your car insurance, right? If you're like a safer driver, but Mm -hmm. your insurance company doesn't know that you're a safe driver because by your demographics Mm -hmm. you don't look like a safe driver and so you're grouped into this other group and so you know that's why they have those like little um monitoring devices that you can plug into your car and your car can transmit the data to the insurance agency so they can really calibrate your rate yeah yeah and so that could happen in banks but the question is whether or not banks have the capability to drill down at that level and then also what is the right level of risk for any of these for any of these deposits right Which is kind of funny because that that also goes into our next question. Look at all these segues. Wow, just great (laughs) transitions
0: all all day so far. So wonderful transition, Kia. That brings me to my potentially unanswerable question and one that you and I have been texting about a little bit, which is how do you distinguish between deposits sourced from banking as a service that are fueling responsible growth? and deposits sourced from banking as a service that are fueling someone's gambling addiction. And the reason I wanted to ask this question is, as you just mentioned, this broker deposits designation that we've been kind of using for a while seems a little outdated and sort of insufficient for that task. And I know that's something that's been coming up and that you've been working on brainwashing everyone in the fintech space to think about and care about deeply. So why don't you give me your take on this unanswerable question?
1: Yeah, so I've been writing about brokers deposits before it was cool. But
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. Kia got there way before the rest of us did.
1: But I managed to um somehow get Jason Mikula pretty interested in this because he published on this topic recently. And it was kind of like a, a nice two parter to his previous newsletter looking at how one community bank in Tennessee, which I'm not familiar with and so I don't don't ask me about You that, don't
0: bank there. Okay. We just wanted uh, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask that question. Okay
1: how this bank is currently doing banking as a service. And he Mm. identified maybe some things that could be concerning if based on solely like, you know, or looking at some of their relationships, who their vendors are, and then the amount of deposits that the bank has grown. Is it? And so the next newsletter was where he just explains to everyone the like 30 year saga of the broker deposit designation, kind of the rules around it or like the laws around it what the FDIC has been able to do with it, and then its 2019 change, which kind of allowed fintech deposits to no longer be seen as brokered, even if they are coming from an intermediary. So like a Chime customer, Chime puts the money at the bank corp. The bank corp used to have to say that that was brokered, and now they don't under the primary purpose exemption. Now, something that I've been really curious about is that, you know, for my purposes, the 2019 rule change basically meant that it became really, really hard to tell which banks are doing banking as a service because unless you're keeping some maintained spreadsheet based on public reporting of these partnerships, there isn't really a way in the call report to de- to like identify with greater certainty that a bank is a banking as a service bank.
0: Everything with you that you object to comes back to data. Like if you screw up Kia's data, oh, you're yeah. dead to her. <laughs>
1: But like to think about even just we used to be able to tell like these banks probably were banking as a service banks because they had a lot of broker deposits that weren't CDs like that's how you would do it and then now you don't have that you just right. have like inexplicable deposit growth yeah they're in, just like
0: yeah wow they're doing great in, right? on deposits right right
1: yeah and I actually now wonder you know most um, community banks are in a twelve to eighteen month exam cycle so yeah. with the with the rollout of the middleware. And the ease that some of these banks have been able to get into banking as a service and gather the deposits, yeah. there might be an exam, like that might've happened after an exam cycle and the regulator might not come back for another 12 to 18 months. And they might not understand the technological complexity and compliance risks that the banks has taken on. Yeah, And so, you know, in September, 2022, acting comptroller Shu gave a speech that kind of illustrated some of this, he said in the speech, that the OCC had identified at least ten regulated banks that had nearly fifty partners, and then used public information they identified um, similar arrangement at uh, similar arrangements at banks regulated by the Federal Reserve and the FDIC. And my question is, is like, how are regulators gathering this data and this information? Is it through the examination process, which could take between twelve and eighteen months to get like an accurate picture? Are they? Doing it based on data from the call report? And then, is it like kind of a problem that we don't have this like firm number of like, is 10 banks a lot? Is 50 fintech partners too many? How the deposits, like, I have a lot of questions about the deposits, but like, what if you have 50 partners, like, that's just a lot of compliance yeah. and monitoring that you have to be doing. Yeah. And so, I also came across um, recently a Fed FIS data point that said, 23% of fintech brands have multiple BAS sponsor banks. Yep. And I also wonder, like, again, is this just based on your membership data? We we don't have good data in the industry. The I think the best Bass data that I've seen is like a crowdsourced spreadsheet maintained by fintechs recording yeah. the different banks that are they've had conversations with about banking as a service. And that doesn't seem like the right way to do this.
0: So here's a somewhat radical proposal, but just to sort of stretch our thinking out a little bit on this topic, because I've had a different question that's sort of related to this, but wouldn't it be nice to know who the deposit brokers are too?
1: So are we talking about banking as a service? Are we talking about like deposit brokers? I'm
0: talking about like deposit brokers, because like broker deposits originally came out of obviously the SNL crisis and about sort of using these intermediaries to source very hot sort of price-sensitive deposits in large amounts quickly in order to then fuel lending growth that turned out to be irresponsible, which obviously Jason has been highlighting recently in his newsletter with Lineage Bank. W- whenever I hear about sort of the history of broker deposits and stuff, one of the questions I always jump to is like- You don't know
1: where the brokers are?
0: Art? Who the hell are these people? You know what I mean? Like, like in like my... the
1: brokerages. Like Vanguard is a deposit well, sure, broker. sure.
0: I mean, and I think yeah. that's true, but then there's also- other sources that are not quite those ones? like I mean, we just talked about Grounded Technologies is another one that just came out I mean, of nowhere. They're new. They're going to get into the game of playing essentially the role of a deposit broker and going it out and finding... On the,
1: how they're, how, like, it really actually depends on how they collect their income. If they collect yeah, sorry. No, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Deposit classifications are wild. So deposit yeah. brokers collect a fee for depo- for placing deposits. Yeah. And then listing services, which can all- they some of these can also be, you pay a membership fee to post. Yeah. And you don't collect a fee based on money placed. And a company can be both a listing service and a deposit broker they can offer both of those services. And so if you use the deposit brokerage part of that service, you have to put that money under a brokered. If you use the listing service part, you can actually put it into a listing service deposit line item. There are two really well-known listing services in the industry that, and there might be more like Grounded, Raisin, or Safe Better. They, these might be listing services. Um,
0: Who are the ones that are well-known just to take care of It's
1: QuickRate and like CD Marketplace. And QuickRate was with a W.
0: I love that. That's always great. The reason I ask is that obviously, like, banks know what those rules are and what they have to classify where they're getting these deposits from. But I kind of wonder, like— kind of known. Well, and do we need, like, even more visibility into, you know, anyone who sources deposits for banks, regardless of banking as a service, listing service, broker, whatever. Like, should you have to register with someone so that, like, we know very specifically— yeah, like I mean, is is it crazy to suggest in the same way that like under the FCRA, right? Anyone who provides consumer data for the purposes of making a lending decision is a consumer reporting agency and are subject to certain requirements under the FCRA. One of the big ones being just like regulators know who you are and can exert a certain amount of supervision over you. I kind of wonder if we need that same type of regulator level visibility into just Everyone who is sourcing deposits for like, banks. Where's this so money not, coming from? Yeah, like we're not saying you can't use them. We're not saying that you know you can't get creative and going out and trying to find the best ones that work for your business. But like, we would be really cool to know both for regulators and for obviously reporters and others who study this space. Like, which fintech programs drive the most deposits? Which bass middleware platforms drive the most deposits? Where do banks source their deposits between brokers, listing services, between interbank networks like Interfi? in terms of being able to swap or sell deposits? Like, I would like to know all of these answers in a great deal more depth. And I kind of feel like that's important information for driving a lot of these discussions around how should we be like modifying these rules and what should we consider hot? Because without knowing where they're coming from, I have a really hard time evaluating like, is this a good banking as a service set of deposits is this a bad banking as a service set of deposits like i have what's the relationship between this banking as a service source of deposits and the bank jason hinted at in his piece that he wrote on lineage that synapse the bass middleware platform may have been exerting some influence over lineage because lineage was so dependent on synapse like that's a commercial relationship that i'd like to understand in a great deal more detail but to your point if we don't have any of this data it gets really hard to do any of this analysis
1: it's interesting i think all the time about how we have so much data about banks and we have no data about non-banks or we have very little data about non-banks yeah you can make like the call report and the strict regulation and examination function all these three things work really well together to generate a ton of industry or data about the banking industry and then we have none of that functionality for any of the non-banks. And it's you know, it'd be interesting if we like let more fintechs get bank charters. We would at least get their data. Yes. <laughs> and we would have more visibility into their practices, but instead. The current regulation regime forces banks to be the proxy enforcers yeah. and reporters of all of this. And so <laughs> when we talk about right. different banks' deposit structure and then have to cross-reference it with the public reporting around yes. who their banking as a service partner is and then be like, wait, so how sticky are these deposits? Well, you've said that they are not brokered, but you know, under the pr- primary purpose exemption, like if the fintech is using multiple banks, that should qualify as a deposit broker. And you know, I think when you were talking about the alloy survey about banking as a service regulation, yeah. I actually do wonder and I do like I would argue that we need to have a fintech deposit line item in the call report now because totally the agree. brokered line item is not doing it anymore.
0: No, it doesn't work at all. Well, and even like that fintech line item, like I don't mean to make bank reporting more complex than it is, but like, could I have a line item with several sub-items that are like, "This is direct fintech deposits sourced right. from a primary relationship." This, is, these are deposits sourced through a middleware platform. Like, we need to get some classifications going here because without it, I can't distinguish between any of these deposits.
1: I think it's like when you fill out your taxes, and it's like, yeah. hey, did you?" For me, do you own a house? No. Do you have a kid? No. I just get to skip those parts of the form. I don't have to mess around. (laughs) I don't have to like figure out. Those parts of the form are annoying,
0: I will say. Yes. No, that makes sense. And like, that's what the call
1: report should be. Like, this should, you know, the work of being a banking as a service bank, filling out your call report line items is just like one more thing. Yeah. Right. You know, going back to even uninsured deposits, I sometimes wonder, like, hey, did we figure? Did reciprocal, the reciprocal deposit network, just figure out the uninsured deposit problem for us? Like, I know that Congress was trying to figure out what was going on with uninsured deposits. The FDIC was thinking about deposit insurance assessments and and changing the coverage level. Well, did the did everyone just put all the money in reciprocals? The reason why you can maybe check that is because reciprocal deposits is a line item in the call report. And would you not believe that over $5 billion in reciprocal deposits, banks have to count that as brokered. The law is pretty clear on this, makes right? Sense. You can just figure it out. It makes sense. It makes sense. <laughs> so yeah, that's my formal plea to the FFIEC to <laughs> once again, change the call report to, so that I can my curiosity can be satiated.
0: Yes. Well, I think that you speak for me on that. I, I don't want to go too far, but I think you probably speak for Mr. Mikula on that as well, because we all do feel like we could use a little bit more.
1: We'll file a joint comment letter to I regulators. Love that.
0: Seriously, let's do that. I, I want to circle back on that idea because I love that. All right. So we fixed call reports. So now, Kia, let's fix one last thing. And I want to sort of reintroduce this segment because we added it last time and it was really fun. This is where I give Kia a chance to blow off some steam. So this segment is called Go Off, Kia, about whatever you want, whatever thing is kind of bothering you right now. And I know you have a, a good one for us today.
1: Okay, I'm going to try to wrap this up as quickly as possible. But Go. Alex, does social media cause bank runs?
0: Oh, okay. This was
1: <laughs> this is an important question that you even wrote about yeah. back in March when we saw a pretty public bank run on SVB. At the same time, we also saw a lot of commentary about SVB stability. on a certain social media network, which I will refer to as Twitter.
0: Yeah, Um, forever and ever, no matter what Elon Musk says otherwise. Yes, keep going.
1: And this actually is so important that regulators have also mentioned the role that social media might have played in um, perpetuating this bank run. Yeah. And so some academics decided to try to answer this question in a new paper called Social Media as a Bank Run Catalyst, which is available on the SSRN website. So... You know, I think this is pretty interesting in part because not just because of Silicon Valley, but because of what happened after Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley had a number of tack-on effects for the industry. But I can acknowledge, as we've talked about, the data is not that good. And it comes out quarterly. And the SVB run happened like two weeks before the end of the quarter. So you didn't even really get the full impact. But it's really challenging to model and establish correlation. The paper uses data on tweets about U.S. banks. And bank stock returns. They use stock returns, not deposits, even mm. though we're talking about a bank failure, mm-hmm. because high-frequency deposit outflow data is not readily available. So, stock returns becomes this proxy for the run period, which Alex, I'm pleased to inform you, this means that your tweets and my tweets are both in this data set.
0: Excellent. Yeah, and, that's wonderful. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> think about. It. Don't think too hard about it. No, no, um, that breaks my brain a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> And so one of the kind of takeaways, if you can believe it, because we know how the Silicon Valley story ends, is that a stock price decline here would indicate a deposit runoff. And I don't like that. I don't know if I think that's true. I think that this is pretty specific to Silicon Valley. And I definitely don't think the opposite is true, that when stock prices increase, deposits are increasing. So I kind of question this use as a proxy.
0: Well, deposits, I mean, that's kind of one of the things that's hard, right, is like deposits are the lifeblood of banks, but they don't really have much to do with like our perception. Yeah, like like the market's perception of how a bank is doing is based on revenue, earnings, profitability. It's based on other things that deposits enable and play a role in. But like a bank could be sort of undercapitalized or, or so it could have fewer deposits than it needs in order to fund whatever lending it's doing. But its latest quarterly earnings could be really good because it just, Mm -hmm. you know, did a bunch of that stuff. So, like, the correlation there seems really loose.
1: Right, right. They also found that banks with a large pre-existing Twitter exposure performed much worse during March 2023, especially if they had large mark-to-market losses and a large percentage of uninsured deposits, which is just so specific to SVB that I find it to be unusable. (laughs) They also, like, found, of course, um, those things were yeah, highly correlated right, with SVB. That's right. what happened. And also, like, unfortunately, sometimes I wander into bank twi- investor Twitter space. Yeah, and that's a bad Those guys place are to talking be. banks all day, every day, but I don't totally. think they're moving markets. And we all, although I will say they are really focused on mark to market losses right now, as is everyone.
0: As everyone.
1: And then Alex, they also found that Twitter was very good for spreading misinformation, which I think you could do your own academic study of the tweets you were looking at that yeah, time and yeah. agree with.
0: Yeah, the all-in pod guys were not exactly paragons of accuracy as it relates to how banks work or bank runs right. or what was going to happen on Monday if the FDIC didn't do this and that. So yeah, no, not not super, super reliable, though those were most of my tweets, actually. We're <laughs> calling them morons, honestly.
1: Their tweets are also in the data set. I've got it. I mean, their
0: tweets should be like in the data, bolded and underlined and like, you know, have way more of a correlative effect than others. I mean, one of the things I find kind of strange about this is if you want to focus on SVB, and I agree, like the useful thing would be what causes bank runs or bank instability broadly and what role does digital technology play in that? Like, to me, that's an interesting question. And there were there have been other studies we've talked about that have looked at like bank walks versus bank runs and, like, the money movement aspect to a bank run. So I think there are definitely interesting ways to pull it apart. The thing I'm more curious about is a lot of the SVB stuff happened before the run, right? So, like, a yeah, seeds so of Yeah, so the theory the is that there's
1: private stuff happening before, yeah. let's, March
0: 8th. Before March 8th, right? And I know for a fact, having been a participant in some of these sort of private group chat type settings, that really, since Bern Hobart wrote about Silicon Valley Bank in, I want to say, like December, maybe, where he pointed out that just from a mark-to-market perspective, they were bankrupt, essentially, that they were out of money. And once he pointed that out in his newsletter, like, that was what got the ball rolling down the mm-hmm. hill. And I think the deeply interconnected nature of SVB's depositors, because they were all Founders and really they were all founders backed by a very small number of VCs who all constantly spend all of this time talking to each other. Again, mostly privately on Twitter, yeah. WhatsApp, you know, Telegram, these different services. Like those aren't social media, but yeah. I would argue that the sort of increasingly frantic nature of those back and forths between, you know, like February, beginning of February through to uh March eighth, like that was where all of the action happened, and then the tip of the iceberg that we all saw was everyone flipping out on Twitter for like a day and a half. But by that point, the the problem was kind of already way out ahead of itself.
1: Right. Well, actually, another criticism I have of this paper is that they don't mention the SVB capital raise at all, and I mentioned March eighth because March eighth is the day SVB puts out that they need to raise. Capital. They have an unpriced capital raise. Yes, and they need to raise capital because they have just sold all of their available for sale securities at a two billion dollar loss. And you know, if you are going to make a paper where you say that stock price is the, a proxy for deposits, you might want to put in there the very, very important piece of information that the stock price is selling out as selling off. Like yeah, totally going down. Cliff. Yeah, yeah. As the bank is trying to price a capital raise, like the bank most of the time banks can ride out their stock declining. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The only time you really can is if you need capital right then and there, right? Right so, right. This is a really, like, to me, a very important omitted detail, which like i don't I don't even understand because like it, it doesn't like disprove your theory. It just kind of starts it just kind of sets aside like why the stock price would have been so important to SVB right. And the other thing that the paper misses that I'm kind of fascinated by is Signature. Signatures run. I can tell you when it stops, right? Because they close on Sunday, March 12th. Yeah. Does it start March 8th? Does it start March 9th? Does it start March 10th? Signature is also having a run at the same time. But in this data set, it's not clear to me that Signature was in the tw- data set of tweets. Mm-hmm. It's not clear that Signature is mentioned in the tweets, right? Like, I don't recall a ton of signature tweets. I just heard that, like, you know, people are pulling money from banks that are similar to SVB from a maybe like a, a borrower, or sorry, a depositor perspective yeah. and then a profile perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And signature is one. The other thing is, like, that this type of analysis, the value of it should actually be applied to First Republic and PacWest. And if you remember PacWest, there was a ton of speculation around what was happening at PacWest and it was happening on Twitter and PacWest I actually don't believe fits their balance sheet risk metric of large mark to market losses plus uninsured deposits but what PacWest has probably is comments on Twitter about the stability of the bank yeah probably leading to depositor withdrawals not right. the other way around if i had to guess and so i like you know this kind of goes back to these questions we've been asking about If certain types of uninsured deposits are riskier, where do these depositors get this information? Where do investors, can we get like faster deposit data that can better track the, you know, these deposit outflows to actually indicate, okay, this is kind of the tipping point of a run or whatnot. But I think this paper was like a good first gesture at answering this question, but it kind of just completely misses the actual use of this analysis, And also now my tweets are in a data set analyzing a bank run.
0: Yeah. Well, we have that going for us forever, Kia. So we have that. I think the overall, it's just kind of, to your point, sort of a a not super serious first attempt at answering a very serious and very complex and difficult to pull apart problem. So I think we'll be wrestling with this one for a while. If any academics are out there listening and they would like to design a better study...
1: of this paper. <laughs> yeah, this yeah, yeah.
0: We have some thoughts. Kia, in particular, I'm sure we'd be happy to do some off-hours consulting with you on how to design a better study. Kia, with that, I will let you go. Thank you so much for joining me for another really epic Bank Nerd Corner. I really appreciate it.
1: And a really, like, well-themed out one. I think we solved the yes. Nova Banking and call reports, so.
0: And, and maybe academic studies. So we're, we're well on our way.
1: Solved all of academic research.
0: <laughs> all right. Thank you, Kia. We will see you next month. All right. See ya. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.